0: The following is for your information and entertainment, and should not be construed as investment advice. On today's episode, I'm joined by private investor Mark Atkinson, and we talk to Miles Adcock, the CEO of defence electronics company Concurrent. Mark has been investing in the UK market for 40 years, and one of his more recent holdings is Concurrent, which he has owned for about six years. Mark contacted me last year to recommend having Miles on the podcast. He told me about the company and the difference Miles has made since joining the business. He told me that on a recent visit to the company, Miles met him in reception, showed him around, talked enthusiastically about the company and its prospects. Miles has a 25-year track record in the electronics, defense, and communications industries, and an impressive understanding of how to take concurrent to a new level of growth. However, it was something else that Mark told me about Miles that stopped me in my tracks and convinced me that Miles was someone I wanted to talk to and hear his story. In this episode, Miles gives us a masterclass on industrial strategy, coping with supply constraints, managing change, and taking responsibility for the performance of a PLC. Then Miles goes on to talk about a particular obstacle he has had to cope with from a young age in so doing miles offers us profound advice to anyone who might face similar challenges i recommend you listen to the end of this episode please enjoy our conversation with miles adcock you joined concurrent technologies which was a business that's always had attractive features such as good margins high returns healthy levels of cash however It was never really, as I think you have said previously, seemed to grow particularly quickly and it always seems to have been run pretty conservatively. And you've come in and sort of reset the business for growth. Did you have a clear vision of that, of what was necessary ahead of coming into the business or has this become more apparent once you were in place?
1: I had a clear sense of what I thought the opportunity could be clearly almost regardless of any due diligence that you do on a business before joining it. It's not until you really get in amongst it that that educated expectation actually becomes validated. I would say during my period in the business so far, the opportunity has exceeded even what I thought it would be. In terms of a vision, or certainly a strategy, the strategy we're embarking on at the moment became very clear really very quickly. Part of the characteristic of the business, successfully run for 37, 36 years before I got there, was that it had become a little bit, other people use the word stagnant or pedestrian, and part of that was perhaps struggling to make some key strategic decisions. So we made those quite quickly, and that revealed really the path that we thought we needed to take over the next two to three-year period. So a long answer, I mean, sort of yes, but it's become
2: validated and strengthened over time. When we met last February, February, so I said to you that you're a man in a hurry. Would you say that that is due to the particular set of circumstances that you inherited, or is that your default nature? Looking back at your CV, it's been one of transformation. And the follow-up question would be, do you ever have to restrain your ambitions, not necessarily in the end goal, but the speed at which you want to move? The pace of change is a really important concept. For this
1: business... I quite quickly determined that we didn't have the luxury of taking it easy in terms of change. We're called Concurrent Technologies. That's our name. That's quite a useful name because it helps me when I say that our job is to concurrently deliver products to the market in line with when our key supplier, in this case Intel, launches its products. And for some years, we've been launching our products maybe 18 months after Intel launched theirs. So that's not concurrent. That misses substantial market opportunity as competitors do launch their products. And if I look at the financial year 2021, around 80% of the orders placed on us were for what we call last time buy or end-of-life products. So that's a business running out of steam. So it actually became... I prefer not to say burning platform. I like a burning beacon because it implies you're heading towards something rather than jumping off something. But that gave us a real burning beacon because we didn't have a lot of time. Financial year 2022, by contrast, most of our purchase orders, maybe approaching 80% as well, were actually, for what we characterize as new and current product, as quite a substantial transformation in the nature of the work that we're winning between those two years, and it had to be done. It had to be done because the revenue in financial year 21, maybe a third of it was last time by, i.e. it's never going to happen again. So we had to take very decisive action. That came with consequence. It's not comfortable changing a business that quickly, but we've got through most of the discomfort. And actually the team, by and large, are finding it exhilarating and enjoyable now.
0: How does this rank in terms of Transformational projects that you've encountered?
1: Oh, it's right up there. I've had the pleasure of working on some of the most intellectually challenging projects, programs, products, or systems in the UK. And I have been not surprised, but it's been educational to me to join a smaller business and find that it is just as challenging in its own way. It might be less complex, but we're transforming every dimension. In the last year, we recruited more than 50 people. Our head count's about 125. A great many people don't know how this business works. There's no sense of, here's how we do things around here in the DNA over many years, because 40% of the people are brand new.
0: And being in the public domain, I mean, being a PLC, I think this is the first time you've run a PLC. Does yeah. that make a difference? Is that a daunting prospect from your perspective?
1: I've worked in PLCs and I've worked for an American listed corporate and I love the environment of a PLC, but being the person singularly accountable internally and externally for the execution of the business, I actually find, I'm trying not to say less stressful, I don't want to <laughs> stressful, but I will say that. Because it Uh, means I can more more authentically deliver against what I consider to be my values and principles. Uh, So I I find it a more relaxed, authentic, energising, exhilarating experience. I see it as a totally good thing.
0: Your chairman needs to be uh, working you harder, obviously.
2: (laughs) I didn't say it wasn't hard work. (laughs) Our company has been driving along for the last few years, but perhaps with the handbrake slightly on, When new management arrives, you know, generally the existing workforce might be a little bit wary or suspicious of change. Most of us are quite fearful of change. I was just wondering what kind of feedback that you've had or have you encountered resistance or has it been quite liberating for your employees in that, you know, I would say that if I'm working for a company that's expanding, that's quite an exciting proposition rather than one that's looking to contract.
1: Change is difficult. One thing we spent a bit of time on as a team was understanding the concept of the change curve. You know, even if change is positive, even if intellectually you understand this is a good thing, it can still be quite troubling at a visceral or physiological level. We were very upfront with ourselves that change was going to be tough. What I observe is in the first few weeks and months of my time with the business, we made a relatively small number of changes. One of the initial ones that had most impact was to move from very strict working hours to something with a lot more flexibility. That that had a profound impact on the
2: relationship between me and people in the business. Kim Garrod has joined you as the CFO, and you've previously worked together at uh, Kinetic, and you've made several of their senior appointments. Are any of these personnel people that you've worked with before and that you're aware of their relative skills and abilities?
1: Yes, the leadership team is a mixture of people who've got good track record in concurrent technologies, you know, really deep understanding of what we do, what we have done, our markets and our technologies, and then more recent joiners. And Kim is an example, recent joiner. The recent joiners in the majority of cases are people I've worked with before. You know, there's a risk that that can appear nepotistic. Actually, my view is this modest-sized company with big ambitions, we need to attract the very best people that we can. And ahead of having that track record of success, you know, ahead of being well-known as a dynamic, progressive, engaging, forward-looking company like what we are becoming, but ahead of that being true, it's quite tough to encourage the world's best people to join at the top of the business. Therefore, our best way to secure the best possible talent was for me to reach out to people I had personal experience with. And... Their enthusiasm for joining the journey was hopefully helped by their enthusiasm for also working with me as part of a team.
2: In the film The Magnificent Seven, when he's trying to put his team together, he's uh, looking to recruit his hired guns—people that he knows they know what to do. You know, they know how to handle the seasoned gunslingers. So, I think that's encouraging, or that you know that these individuals are competent. Shall we say, and you know the track record?
1: Yes, exactly. You take Kim for example. So. You know, she was FD of a very large part of the company that you mentioned. In her tenure, they made a large number of acquisitions. And so she has experience not only of being an FD of a serious business, but also overseeing acquisitions. Our engineering director, amongst many other things, was once the engineering and then managing director of Curtis Wright in the UK, who are one of our bigger competitors. And I could go on, but I think we've really gone over and above in terms of the incoming caliber of people. And for the folks who've been in the business for quite a long time, they are fantastic individuals as well. And I think without exception, they're welcoming of the injection of talent in people around them.
2: We met down at Colchester, which is where the production takes place. But you've also got a facility where the R&D is conducted at Thielen in Berkshire. I presume that's where the talent pool is, uh, Miles. I believe you've been investing in that facility. Could you possibly just expand on that a bit for us? Yeah, we have. So.
1: Historically, the business described itself as having a main facility and headquarters at Colchester, and through necessity, set up a little bit of a satellite office in Thiel. And when you went there, it felt like a satellite office. There's very little encouragement to travel between the two locations. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to sit in a satellite office. That's tough. Whereas we really want to recruit the best. So we have now established a well-invested in, really cutting-edge Large facility in Thiel, we can accommodate up to fifty people there. Very well equipped, and certainly post COVID, yes, we're happy for people if their jobs are appropriate to do some time working at home. But actually, our facilities are collaborative. They need to have a buzz. They need to have energy, and therefore they need to be places that people want to spend time. So I'm extremely proud of what we've achieved in Thiel. One of the first hires I made was a people director, Vicky. And one of her first jobs, in addition to start hiring people, was she oversaw everything about this new facility because it's all about motivating and engaging people. And, yes, we've done that. In the last six months, we've hired something like a dozen, maybe 15 people, and not just engineers, actually. So if it's going to feel not like a satellite, there needs to be a location that anyone can work at. Additionally, we are hiring globally. We've made a number of hires now where the individuals are nowhere near any of our facilities, whether in the UK or the US. But if they're the right people and we can make it work, then we'll hire them.
0: You mentioned earlier, Miles, that I mean the very name of the company that you're now running is based around concurrently launching products based on Intel semiconductors. And our Intel remains a very large producer, by volume the largest. So I'm sure it's been a very successful relationship over the long haul for concurrent. Are there any concerns around this relationship? In recent years, you know, in terms of new products and new ways of doing things in semiconductors, as far as I see it, other companies have come to surpass Intel in terms of innovation and the way they do things. Is this a potential risk for concurrence? How do you think about this?
1: Any relationship which is dominant is both a great strength, but also has some risk. Our whole business has been making Intel-based single-board computers. We're now well embarked on a strategy to also deliver systems. So other cards that live alongside single-board computers, which may or may not have any Intel content, a graphics, a GPU, for example, wouldn't necessarily have any Intel content at all. So whether ourselves or through partnership, we're now engaging in a wider set of capabilities, not just Intel-based single-board computers. And then we're also developing capability to deliver systems, which are what these cards go into. Therefore, if, heaven forbid, in the future, there was some fundamental inability for Intel to partner with us, which I think is unlikely, but clearly would be very high impact, if that happens in the future, we're better protected against it as we diversify the business. Nonetheless, Intel dominates as a supplier to us right now and for the foreseeable future. Actually, for the majority of our customers, their intended use much better aligns with Intel than anybody else.
0: You're not getting customers pushing back to you no. saying, can we have the latest Wizzy chip from NVIDIA or whoever?
1: No, because for them, it's all about track record, assuredness. Intel focus on their federal relationship. And in fact, in current circumstances, they're focusing on it more because Getting quite a lot
0: of funding from from that relationship
1: too. Well, that's right. And they're building foundries in the United States. In an environment where consumers are spending less, then government spend matters more and more. We have developed an ARM-based product. Our position, navigation, and timing card utilizes an ARM chip. So we're starting to learn that. But the use case for a very low size, weight, and power chip is very different to the use case for maximum processing capability which is often what our customers want.
2: The company of a physical presence in the two largest economies in the world, the US and China, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the profile of those two offices that we've got. And I understand that in the US it's quite an exciting time because we are looking to transform across to some form of production. Yes.
1: There are two very, very different cases. I'll do the US first. So the US represents about 40% of our revenue. It's the single largest market that we have. It's also the single largest opportunity for growth. So, despite merely having a very competent sales and support engineering presence in the US, it dominates our order intake as a region. Therefore, if we can be more fully present in the United States, if we can lean into being truly a US business as well as a UK business, it's clear to me that we'll grow that business. We've made some very important hires in the US. And they're opening the doors to some significant new opportunities. America, more than any other region, likes to be forward-leaning in technology. Companies like ours will often sell products in the U.S., maybe even years before they're taken up elsewhere in the world. So it's the leading market, without doubt. We've qualified a partner to be able to manufacture our product. So we're now capable of marketing assembled in the United States product, which really matters. There's quite a high requirement in federal government to buy America. And the larger the program, the more likely that is to be a stipulation. So if we want to access larger contracts, then it's important that we're more authentically based in the US. We are acquisitive in nature. There's not a lot I can say about that other than we are putting the effort into understanding the opportunities out there for acquisition. And that will have a bias to our home markets, the United States and the UK. So, you know, the U.S. is very vibrant. We need to be seen as a U.K. and U.S. business. We're making good progress with that. China as a market we sell a little into historically. We've had a presence there in so much as we have a sales office. Actually, I'm reviewing whether or not we want to have a physical presence in China. Increasingly, we're cautious about selling our very latest product into China, lest some of the people who are also buying our latest product have some concerns around that. It's not obvious to me that it's a market we should focus on right now.
2: Miles, clearly concurrent I would describe them as an export champion. Just expanding on that earlier question, I would think the significant untapped potential that we've got in the UK, from what you said about the US market and the importance of it being US manufacture, is that the same in the UK? Is there that same need for it to be a high level of UK manufacturing Is that mirrored from what happens across the pond? No, it's not quite the same. So US government tends to be far more assertive
1: on issues such as US made or things they call small business set aside or positively discriminating against minority group companies. Whereas the UK historically has tended to be a little less assertive on those fronts, which is why I say I consider it to be our job to get ourselves front and center rather than rely on any kind of governmental policy. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right in that there is in general a trend towards prioritizing national businesses and national content,
2: particularly in defense programs. We've talked quite a bit about defense, which is by far the company's largest sector, accounting about 70% of sales. As we're looking to grow the business, do you foresee that this will be the main area to target or do you think that will come more from other sectors that the company addresses?
1: Defence is our biggest area. My view is the biggest opportunity for growth is in the area that you already understand best and is already biggest for you, if you're a small player in a large market. So my anticipation is that the defence sector for us will grow quite substantially. It's also a community that tends to establish standards and ways of working that can be quite attractive. So a lot of our products, for example, are what are called SOSA-aligned, SENSOR's open systems architecture, which is an architecture defined collaboratively with a number of companies and organizations in North America. And that enables a large number of businesses like us to participate in bidding for and delivering product into programs that conform to that kind of standard. Therefore, that represents quite a big opportunity for us. It's less likely that you'll find other market sectors defining those sorts of standards in quite the same way. So, defence is already big for us, and I think it's our biggest opportunity. It also presents those sort of architectural environments in which a modest-sized company like us can participate on a relatively equal footing with very large competitors. That said... There are some really big opportunities outside of defense, and we will be looking at those as well. It's not a pivot away from defense, absolutely not, but alongside growing our defense interests, the comms market is still huge. Last year, we secured a $2.3 million order into the medical market in the United States. That should be a repeat purchase order for the next seven to ten years. So that's a major part of this business now in medical. So, a long answer, Mark, but defence for now is our priority, but we do need to understand some of those other key markets and how we're growing them.
2: I can see the wisdom in sticking to your
0: knitting, really. So, we've talked about geography and we've talked about sectors, but you've also transitioning the business from being a pure card provider, component supplier, if you like, to a systems supplier. My question here is whether you risk competing against your customers, because presumably if I'm a systems manufacturer buying your components, I don't want to see you turning up at the next pitch for a new systems product for one of my customers. So are the risks inherent in this strategy? And I guess the other question here is, which I think we'll come on to when talking about the financial dynamics of the business, is does it impact the working capital requirements in the business?
1: If you go about it in the wrong way, then yes, there are risks. Actually, most people in our market exist in that co-competitive environment where on different days, they're each other's customers, suppliers, or partners. The key for me is how do you go about it? Setting up a high-integrity series of relationships where the people you work for or have in your supply chain understand how you work together and are not surprised or disappointed by you as a business is what is key. So yes, it needs navigating well, but I think if you do it with integrity, if you're clear, then there's a perfectly reasonable way forward. It simply puts us on the same footing as most other companies in our marketplace. In terms of the financial dynamics, yes, if you're a systems provider, then you're providing third-party content in your system. So it potentially attracts a slightly lower margin. That said, if you're providing custom systems, then you will often be paid As you work through that project, so the cash profile can be quite different for a system. And we will report, externally report, our systems business separately from our board business so that everyone can see exactly how it's performing.
0: Obviously not asking you to make a forecast, but how do you feel about the potential of this development over the long term, five years or so, in terms of how big can this be in terms of revenue contribution, profit contribution for the group?
1: It should be at least as big as our board's business. So I realize it's not a very precise answer. Our no. boards business should be substantially bigger than it is, and can be. And a systems business should be broadly a similar size. I'd like to be more precise about it, but we're on that
2: journey of understanding exactly what the opportunity is. We've talked about growing the business by our means of organically. We've also alluded to the M and A, and Kim's got experience. I just wonder what experiences across the wider team in M and A and. Can you touch on where it might occur geographically?
1: Geographically, it will be in our home markets, which I've said are the United Kingdom and the United States. And, you know, we haven't talked about Europe. Europe is huge for us, actually. If you take the whole of Europe, it's a similar size to the US. However, it's not a home market. We project into Europe from the UK, and we sell via distributors, by and large. So the UK and the US are our focus for this point in time. Our first acquisitions will absolutely be aligned to our system strategy. So they will either enable us to secure content in the system, whether that's cards that sit alongside our cards or other capabilities in a system, or indeed a systems integrator. So expect it to align with that strategy, the first few acquisitions, and expect them to be either in the United States or the United Kingdom. In terms of experience on the team, yes, Kim has a lot. I have been in businesses that have been acquired and acquire. I've got a lot of experience on integrating teams and businesses post-acquisition and post-restructuring. And then a number of the people I've hired have similar experiences to that as well. It's Kim really who has most experience on actually seeing an acquisition through from beginning to end. We're also, as you might expect, hiring in a little uh professional support where we need it to make sure that we do it properly. Uh, absolutely critical, and this is true for any business, but it's especially true for us, absolutely critical that the first acquisition works extremely
2: well. Just going on to the actual product, and the word that's not do not come up very often in the English language, ruggedization. So uh, a lot of your products are able to extre- withstand extremes in temperature, moisture, shock, and vibration. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the testing process and how you put these products through the paces.
1: I mean, that really is the value that a lot of customers are paying for when they buy our products. If you take temperature, for example, what a lot of our customers don't want is fans to remove heat off of a board. So, you know, you might buy a fancy board for your computer at home and it'll have a great big fan on it. Our customers don't want that, and yet they'll be operating our product in environments that experience temperatures far greater than your home PC ever will. Therefore, we have to introduce the kind of technology that can extract heat, but we also have to put our products through quite extreme test regimes. So we have an in house temperature cycling and vibration inducing test capability. All of our product goes through that as it's being qualified. We then have other requirements for humidity, salt water, all kinds of other environmental conditions which we either can do in-house or we have to send out-house, and then underwriting that our products can perform and survive in those conditions, signing up to that, having it in terms of conditions, is really important to our customers. And we have very, very few returns based on product failing in extreme environmental conditions.
2: So I'm a total layman on this kind of product, and I'm just wondering about the evolution of embedded computer products Where are we? And is there no end to it? You've set a target of doubling the number of products that come to market, I think from four to eight. Is that easy to do? Or do you have people in the R&D team scratching their heads with, you know, what can we come up with next? And what are the drivers for product development? Is it size, speed, durability? For the foreseeable, there's
1: no end to it. The general rule that technology doubles every 18 months or so has held for decades there's no sign that that's going to change anytime soon and indeed with the advent of artificial intelligence quantum technology etc we should expect some substantial steps up it's just a fact that in the front edge markets of yes defence but if you think medical if you think comms then humanity is always striving to have the very very best capability so i don't think there's any short term end to it there are big shifts that make a big difference to what is required. So for example, for many years in defense technology, the belief was that you wanted to do as little computing as possible in the frontline vehicle, let's say, and it would send data back. Or it might be true in space, you know, do as little processing as possible on the satellite and send it back to ground. In both of those environments, in defense, it's now do as much computing as possible as near to the edge of where the action is, do your computing there. One, because it's more timely, it's more rapid. But two, you don't have any kind of cybersecurity comms threat as you try to send information back. Therefore, defense now typically wants vast amounts of processing right at the edge, which is a big change in recent years. And similarly in space, you know, satellites, we're not big in space yet, but it's an example to your question. Satellites are collecting colossal amounts of information. If they're imaging satellites, for example, which I have a little bit of a background in, it's just too expensive in power and heat to send all of that data back to Earth. Therefore, the satellite has to do a lot of processing. These policy changes around technology drive the requirement quite often for companies like us.
0: I did notice this morning the Intel CEO saying from Davos that You didn't think the semiconductor shortage is behind us yet. What's your take on it? And I guess the other issue is in terms of, for a business such as yours, using your balance sheet to stock your inventories of these sometimes short products, we're all assuming that process will unwind at some stage, but we're not quite sure when. So I think in terms of the returns we see, the type of business you're running, that's quite a critical issue.
1: Yeah, it is. Last year was tough. What we experienced last year was very roughly an increase in our lead time to our customers from about 12 weeks to maybe 40 weeks. And so the impact of that is clearly it adds another 20, 30 weeks to our ability to ship invoice and get cash back in the door. Now we've lived through that. That has happened past tense. We're now delivering product. There were orders that were placed, say, 40 weeks ago. You know, averaging everything out in general terms, if the supply chain gets no better, then we've lived through the worst of the revenue deferment and the cash deferment. So, good. However, that's a very general term. There will remain specific issues. We can have all of the items for a board bar one. And if we don't have that one, we can't make the board. So, those issues are amongst us still and will persist. I agree that we're not out the woods yet. However, in general, it is right now today, I'm tapping wood, in general, it is much better. A lot of suppliers are making their products much more readily available in a shorter period of time. So it is my hope, possibly expectation, that we're past the worst of it. And my point just now, we've lived through the... I think, the worst experience, which is that deferment of revenue. Therefore, we should expect this year, in terms of financial performance for concurrent technologies, we should expect this year for it to return to something that we might have previously thought of as normal, but with a real opportunity for exceptional performance if supply chains really do free up. We've built capacity in. So we've been running two shifts now since October. November was the best revenue month. This business has had for a long time, maybe ever. And December was better than that. And that's based entirely on the fact that components were available and we were running two shifts hot. So we intend to run two shifts during the first quarter of this year, for example.
0: So if we're entering a sort of stop start period of supply, no supply, supply, no supply, you're going to have to run a growing but a very agile business because you're going to be producing flat out some periods and twiddling your thumbs others.
1: Correct. And our order intake last year was 25% higher than the previous record order intake year. So customers are placing orders. We've got a substantial backlog. It's there to be done. As components become available, it's our job to um, turn them into products as quickly as possible. And this year, we're confident to be better than last year.
2: So on the assembling of product Mal, is it a case that you will not commence assembling a product unless you've all the components or will you potentially part make the product and then these are piling up waiting for the one key piece to come in? Because another business in which I'm involved, on the different size of product, it's created all kinds of problems because they've 95% of the product and then they've had to go into external warehousing, for example. So I'm just wondering, do you part make the product? No, we
1: don't. For us, part making a product is a bad idea from a quality perspective. But also, if we part make a product... And then we're surprised when one supplier lets us down, but another one delights us. We don't want to think, ah, we wish we'd used those components on a different board. (laughs) So no, we wait until we've got everything we need. What's characterizing the business at the moment is replanning. We're replanning the factory all the time. And it's because the mix of parts that become available is never quite as you expect. And if the mix isn't quite what you expect then our job is to replan so that we make what can be made rather than wait until we can make what we had previously planned to make.
2: When we met last year, you kindly gave me a tour of the Colchester facility and then we had a meeting in the boardroom. That was a big help in me understanding this business that is a little bit outside of my circle of competence. I found that you asked me as many questions as I asked you and you were asking me things like, you know, what's important to you as a shareholder? And we've had the occasional exchanges. I'm just wondering... As a theme, how important is it for you that you engage with the shareholders? I would just like to say that since your appointments, I would say that you've been quite visible and available.
1: It's really important to me. There's a belief historically that this business does things that are terribly secret and can't be known. That's not true. So we might serve defence markets, and sometimes we have to be discreet about who our customers are and what they do. But we don't do anything inherently secret. Our products are mostly cot products. That may evolve evolve over time. But even if what we did was incredibly secret in the details of the design, there's always a way to talk about it in general terms. We're a listed company, and therefore we're owned by investors such as yourself, and we have to be as transparent and engaging as possible. It happens. I also find it extremely interesting. As you noted earlier, it's the first time I've done this job. I'm curious by nature and like to understand how things work and how I can help and therefore, getting really involved in the investor community is important. It's important for this business as well. If we're going to do things that are strategic and increasingly strategic, we've touched on M&A, then we're going to have to have the goodwill and support and money from investors. That's going to be a lot harder to get if we've been secretive and opaque for a period of time. Yeah.
0: When Mark first contacted me and suggested inviting you onto the podcast – he told me something about you that, well, it frankly blew my mind. He told me about this guy he would met in Colchester running a defense technology business, which had a bit of a sleepy track record, but with ambitions to grow. He told me that you'd met him in reception and talked to him enthusiastically about your company. And then Mark said to me, Oh, and by the way, Mars is blind. I don't want to sensationalize this, but I was gobsmacked. How did you? How do you manage this? Can you just talk a little bit about the coping mechanisms that you must have developed to be where you are today?
1: When I was 16, I was diagnosed with a genetic but recessive condition called Stargardt's disease, also known as juvenile macular degeneration. The impact of that is over time, but it comes on pretty quick. The individual loses all central vision, so I have no central vision at all, which is where all of your high-resolution Actually, a lot of processing goes on in there. But anyway, your high-resolution stuff happens in your central vision. And I also lost most of the color out of my periphery. So I have some peripheral vision, which means I can walk around and shake hands and say hello and look relatively normal. But actually, I can't read printed material. It's very hard for me to recognize faces. Good job for everyone else I can't drive. So that presents some challenges. Technology makes it a lot easier. My computers and phones and things talk at me, they zoom in and out, I have some vision. What a lot of people don't understand is the definition for blindness is if you can't read the biggest letters on the chart, even if you have glasses. And there's lots of us that are nowhere near reading the biggest letters on the chart. But we are able to get around, even though it's quite challenging. A really important moment for me was years ago, You know, like a lot of disabled people potentially, I tried to sort of pretend that everything was normal and muddle my way through. And someone said to me, well, why don't you get some help? (laughs) Which seems like a really obvious thing. (laughs) And so I did. And that help was things like, well, if you're in busy public places where you tend to bump into people or can't read the signs and get lost, why don't you just carry a white stick? Well, because that's embarrassing. Well, that's a silly reason, isn't it? Because if you carry a simple stick, and people can help you, and they'll want to help you, and that was certainly my experience. And some of that help was teaching me how to use certain technologies which are extremely useful. In fact, one of the most useful things I did was learn to touch type, which having spent years peering at a keyboard with my nose about one inch away from it, the ability to touch type is not only liberating for my head, but it's done my posture and that of good as well. So thank you for the question. I think it's really important that we understand the disabled people can do will have really important jobs but that accommodation finding workarounds finding people who can help you with workarounds is very important i'm lucky that my chosen career wasn't brain surgery or fighter pilot or something (laughs) and i'm lucky in that i have quite a lot of control around my environment you know the way we work is something i can define so i'm very very fortunate there i think a lot of people are much less fortunate where they try to struggle in environments where they feel like they're clashing With their abilities or limits in ability.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that with us, but is there any advice you'd give to your younger self on anything about this journey to where you are today?
1: That's a really interesting question. I sometimes reflect on the younger self as if he was a different person, and one moment in particular I'll reflect on was First State University in the front row of a lecture theatre with about 300 people in it as a very young person. And then I used to have to use a telescope to strive to read what was on the board. And I'm very pleased that that person made the decision to turn around to 300 people, introduce himself, introduce myself, say hello, and just briefly explain that this is really embarrassing, but I have to use this thing to see the board. The alternative was that I would have just shrunk into my parker and been the oddball. I'm so pleased I was brave enough to do that, that was a real sliding doors moment, I think, for me. So I would encourage anybody in any situation that might appear somehow similar to really try and muster the courage to be open about it with people around them.
2: I think it's very inspiring, Miles, because um, you know we talk about exactly. giving people opportunities in the workplace, and that doesn't necessitate there's going to be a, just a fringe role. We're actually talking about somebody's going to be a CEO of a PLC. When we met. And I don't want to play down what you've got to contend with, but you came across as somebody who treats it more of a, as an inconvenience than a disability. That's the way it came across to me. So um, Good. And certainly not
1: what defines you. Yeah. Well, one might hope that if people can overcome pretty challenging obstacles, they might also be able to overcome some pretty challenging business obstacles. And I do think that the kind of people that can overcome big things in their I don't see a difference between work life and home life. It's just life. So someone that's capable of overcoming certain challenges in life, I'm sure can overcome challenges that are beneficial to others as well.
0: I'm absolutely sure that's true. I think that's very profound. Miles, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Concurrence is firmly on my watch list now, and I really look forward to following your progress with interest going forward. So thank you so much. And thank you, Mark, for joining us today as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, incompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes.